0: Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 8. The Apostle Paul says At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy. Being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared. He saved us not because of righteous things we had done. But because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Whom he poured out on us generously. Through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that having been justified by his grace. We might become heirs. Having the hope of eternal life. And this is a trustworthy saying. And I want you to stress these things. So that those who have trusted in God. May be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. Titus 3, 3 through 8. This is the story of the Bible, isn't it? If if you you talk to someone sometime and they ask you, "What's what's the Bible about? Titus 3, 3 through 8. Really, that's the story of the Bible. That's the, that's the story of of uh, 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 our fall and God's pursuit and our, and our redemption by Him. That's really what it is. And, you know, we can't see this so much because we're reading in English, but the book of Titus, the letter to Titus was originally written in another language, and in in Titus chapter 3, at least verses 3 through 7, really are only two sentences. Just two sentences. Verse 3, that's sentence 1, and then verses 4 through 7, a really long second sentence. So this is a a two-sentence sermon. Two-sentence sermon with one big point. Sentence number 1, verse 3. Paul says, at one time, we too. At one time, we too. Now, that's not something I'd expect the the Apostle Paul to say. Well, what I would have expected the Apostle Paul to say would be something like, at one time, you were. Because remember who he's talking to. Yeah, I mean, he's written this letter to Titus, one of his lieutenants in the faith. But where is Titus? He's on the island of Crete. Remember? The, the reason I left you in Crete was so that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Titus is on the island of Crete to, to shore up all of these new church plants, these house churches that have occurred on the island there. And you remember what kind of audience these Christians, you remember what kind of people they were, Right? remember the Cretans, always liars evil roots lazy gluttons i'm going to say it every sunday in this series it's our memory verse (laughs) i mean that's who he had to work with that's who these folks were Uh, uh, he goes on later to say you know that they claim to know god but by their actions they deny him chapter 1 verse 16 they are detestable disobedient and unfit for doing anything good that's the audience there And yet the Apostle Paul says, at one time, we too. He puts himself in their crowd. Not at one time you were. What time we too. We too. And if you're here at Windsor Road for the very first time, we are a Titus three church. You need to understand that. We are a, we are a, at one time, we too kind of church. We're not a, Try to keep up if you can, kind of church. (laughs) We're not that, trust me. We're not. We're at one time, we too. At one time, at one time, we too. We, We were foolish, and we were disobedient, and we were deceived, and we were enslaved by all kinds. We were. We might come from different backgrounds, different cultures. Paul was diametrically different than than the Cretan culture. I mean different race, different language, different religious heritage, different past. But in spite of all of those differences, they shared this. They shared and we share with Paul, with the Cretans, we shared a at one time, we too, plight. And it is, it is a it, it is a dilemma, it is a plight, it is a situation, it's a problem that is pandemic. It is global. And it is the problem of pursuing counterfeit gods. The problem of idolatry. See, that's that's why he uses this word, deceived and enslaved. Deceived and enslaved. Deceived. And, and, and it's not just alcohol that can make you deceived and enslaved and envy and jealousy and being hated and hating one another. It's money, it's materialism, it's pornography, and you know what? It's even religion. Above all, it can be religion. That was the Apostle Paul's problem. The Apostle Paul was a recovering religious legalist. I mean, he, he was absolutely fixed on a perfectionistic pursuit of, of a religious expression, and he just had to be right, had to had to work on the religious pedigree, advancing. I'm not making this stuff up. The apostle Paul, in his own faith story, in Acts chapter 26, verse 9, says, I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. No, 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 Notice he doesn't just ignore Jesus. I'm just going to ignore this this guy from Israel. I'm going to just go to the Roman games and kind of live my life the way I want to live. No, 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 no. He wasn't going to just ignore Jesus. He wanted to oppose Jesus. And and verse, verse 10 of Acts 26 says, and that's just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the saints in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. And I tried to force them to blaspheme. Now, he's not just waiting for them to, you know, commit the sin of Christianity in his eyes before he catches them. Not a caught in the act kind of thing. No, he tried to force them to blaspheme, force them to confess. And he says, in my obsession against them, my obsession against them. I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. I think that's what Paul's getting at when he says in Titus chapter three, verse three, enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures because church, not all passions and pleasures are sexual in nature. And not all passions and pleasures are chemical in nature. Some, the worst kind, can be religious in nature. Religious legalism. This this religious self-righteousness, this obsessed with being right and then ferreting out that which is wrong and punishing it so that you stand at the end of the day in your rightness. It's an idol. It's a counterfeit God. And the Cretans had their counterfeit gods. Paul has had his counterfeit God. What's yours? What's your idol? What is it? Don Carson is a professor at the school where I attended in Deerfield, Illinois, and Trinity International University, and he told about a very insightful conversation that he had with um, a particular woman who worked at a um, prestigious university. And he asked her the question, because she often worked with undergraduate women, advising them, et cetera, and he asked her the question, he said, um, what is it that's driving the undergraduate women in uh, the university where you work? And she just, she, she had answers right away. She said, there's three drivers. The first driver comes from mom and dad and it, and it comes in the form of this. Mom and dad say, uh, get nothing less than an A. It's a prestigious university. What do you expect them to say? Get less than an A. That whatever you gotta do, Nothing less than an A. That's it. It's straight A's. That's the way it is. And, uh, well, this university happens to grade on the bell curve, and so there's a tremendous amount of competition to get that A, and that's driving these young women. The second driver comes from not just uh, the parents, but from the culture of the school itself, and it sounds like this. Do some good. Do some good, as if you have time because you're trying to get that A. Do some good. Get an A. Do some good. You know, go help victims of Katrina and that kind of a thing, but do some good. Do some good. And the third drive, the third driver is uh comes from the media, comes from Madison Avenue, and it sounds like this. Be hot. Be hot. Get A's. Do some good and be hot. And that these undergraduate women, that affects, that affects their relationships, that affects how they are perceived in other relationships. That affects how they dress. And this wise woman says, these drivers, these demands drum away incessantly. And there's no margin. There's no room for letting up. There's only room for failure. And the result is that about 80% of women during their undergraduate years will suffer eating disorders. And close to the same percentage will at some point be clinically depressed. Why? Because of these counterfeit gods These drivers, and and this person said the world keeps telling them they can do anything, and soon this becomes a demand that they must do everything, or they're going to be a failure in their own eyes or the eyes of others, and then they become Christians. But because these counterfeit idols have not been completely eradicated. It's not long before then becoming a Christian means, well, I've got to become the best Christian and the metric then becomes attendance at a prayer gathering or leading a prayer gathering or I've got to make sure I get my quiet time done today and it just becomes a checklist. An achievement-oriented checklist. Richard Keyes has written a fascinating chapter called The Idol Factory. Listen to what he says. He says, if we try to make something finite, fill the place that only God can fill, we will try to extract an unrealistic level of meaning from that idol. And when it does not work, it invites us only to try harder, only to enslave us more. And these idols have promised life, but they are death-dealing. And they are anti-human. And they're constricting. And it's just this role reversal that the psalmist has in mind when the psalmist wrote in psalm 115 verse 8 those who make them will be like them and so will all who trust in them the idol begins as a means to power enabling us to control but then it overpowers us controlling us see and 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 you may be, listen, you may be thinking today, well, wait a minute, that's not us because we're here in church. Listen, did you not hear what Gary just said? Gary talked about having one foot in the world and one foot in God's kingdom and being most miserable. And that's exactly, listen, write down 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 33. It's not on the screen. Scribble it on the palm of your hand. Put it on the margin of your Bible put it on your, um, on your outline, tuck it underneath your pillow tonight before you go to sleep. 2 Kings 17, verse 33 says, they worshiped the Lord, but they also served their own gods. That's a, that, is, that is a potent combination. That's spiritually fatal. And that's why Paul says, at one time, we too. At one time, we too. Oh, I've had enough of that verse. How about you? It's called bad news, church. It's just called bad news. And if you don't get the bad news, you're not going to smile at the good news. So let's go to sentence number two. Sentence number two is in Titus chapter 3, verse 4. Because it, amidst the darkness of Titus 3, 3, the dawn breaks, and the dawn says, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, Jesus intervened. Notice it doesn't say that God sent another prophet, or another angel showed up. No, God showed, the boss came to town. Jesus showed up, Jesus intervened. And Paul says, he saved us. He saved us. What does that mean? Well, we've got, to, we've got to go back and think about Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, when the angel did tell Joseph concerning the birth of Jesus, you will call him Jesus for he will what? Save the people from their sins. He's, we're talking about a deliverance that's taking place, a deliverance from from a dark kingdom to the kingdom of light. And it's, it, when Jesus saves us from our sins, you've got to understand he says, in verse five, he says, he saved us not because of righteous things we had done. So it's not, but, but when he says that, he's not saying that, okay, we, we did a little bit of righteousness and now Jesus is going to make up the difference. <laughs> That's not what that says. That's not what that means. It means that well, we don't do any righteousness. None whatsoever. Our righteousness is as filthy rags before the throne of God. And and we can talk about how when we pursue counterfeit gods, we do not live to the potential of being an image bearer that God wants us to be. We can talk about that, and that's very true. It is. When we pursue counterfeit gods, and when we pursue the idols in our life, we're not living up to our potential. And, and and, and, And they take and suck the life out of us but we've got to understand, see, if we're being saved from our sins, that means that in addition to these counterfeit gods keeping us from being who God wants us to be, whenever we sin, listen, pursuing counterfeit gods is highly offensive to a holy God. And when what we need to understand is that God's justice and God's holiness will not just Cause him to sweep our disobedience and our insurgency underneath a rug and act like it didn't exist. I mean, we ow, ow, I mean, as humans, we have this innate passion for justice. We want justice to be done. We do. We want fairness. You say, where do you get that, Randy? Go to a ball game. That's where I get that. And we're just talking about a ball game. A ball game talking about a holy God and our sin is offensive to him when when Adam and Eve sinned God himself pronounced the death sentence what else was he going to pronounce when our spiritual ancestors spit in the face of the life giver and and chose to be their own gods what else was left for the real God to do Some of you are familiar with the book, Miracle on the River Kwai. Um, the book then became a movie by a, kind of a different name. But the Miracle on the River Kwai uh, chronicles the story of World War II soldiers uh, who were uh, prisoners of war, uh, uh, being guarded by Japanese soldiers And they would be marched out from the camp and out to the work site every day. And they would do this uh, hard labor. And then based on that labor, then they would, at the end of the day, they would uh, march back to the camp. And there would be two counts. There would be a prisoner count, and then there would be a count of uh, the shovels. And one day after marching back to the camp, there was a prisoner count, and then there was a shovel count. And uh, one of the shovels was missing. And the the soldiers immediately assumed that one of the prisoners had stolen the shovel later than to be used for an escape. And this this situation, the guards immediately demanded that the guilty prisoner step forward. And none of them did because none of them had taken it. And the guards said, "If if the guilty person does not step forward, we will shoot all of you. And then they raised their rifles, and at that point, one of the soldiers stepped forward. He was immediately taken, shot, and buried right there. And then the shovels were recounted, and it was discovered, in fact, that there wasn't one missing. And every one of those other prisoners went to bed that night, and for the rest of their lives, realizing that their lives had been saved due to the sacrifice of an innocent sufferer. And so the Bible says that Christ died for sinners, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. See, that's what we've been saved from. We've been saved from our past. We've been saved from our sins. But you need to understand that salvation is not just something about the past. Salvation is not just something about forgiveness. Oh, it's that, all right. But it's not just that. Because the Apostle Paul goes on to say, He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He says, He saved us, and I love this, through the washing, that is, through the bath. Through the bath. God gives us a bath. Through the bath of rebirth, through the bath of literally Genesis again, through the bath of Palin Genesis, Genesis again, re Genesis, rebirth, through the bath of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. That word renewal, we see that in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, when the Apostle Paul says, Don't be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the what? By the renewing of your minds. There, there it is. We've, we, the Holy Spirit has given us a bath of Genesis again and renewal. Poured out on us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And I the apostle Paul is going back in his mind, he's thinking of the of of the prophecy in Ezekiel chapter 36 verse 24 when God says of his people I will take you out of the nations I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land I will here's the bath I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols those idols which enslaved you Those idols which entrap you, I'm delivering you from that. I'm cleaning you from that. And I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you to move you. What's gonna drive us now? Getting an A? No. Being hot? No. The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's gonna be moving us to follow God's decrees and being careful to keep God's laws. That's why, because of Jesus and the Holy Spirit on our hearts and lives, and the bath of rebirth and renewal that we've received, that's why we can then, in Titus 3, 1 and 2, Be good citizens and be obedient and be ready to do what's good and to slander no one and to be peaceable and considerate and to show true humility. It's not not because of what we've done, but because God's put his Holy Spirit in us to move us toward the life he wants us to live. So we have our our sins forgiven in the past, we've been acquitted and justified, and in the present, we are being moved and motivated and purified and renewed by his Holy Spirit to live the life that God wants us to live. That's, That's a Christmas gift that no one can take away. And why would God do that? Why would he do it? Why? Because he loves you, that's why. And the kindness of love, but why does God love you? Why does He love you? You ever thought about that? Well, well, because God doesn't make any junk well <laughs> cute but not helpful to answering that question. Is not. No. No. You know why God loves you? God loves you because he loves you. Well, that's that's circular. You're right. God loves you because he loves you. There's nothing behind that statement. And there's nothing beneath that statement. You see, God's love is the starting point. God loves you because God is love. That's just who he is. And so, someone put it this way. What binds us together is not common education or common race or common income levels or common politics or common nationality or common accents or common jobs or anything else of that sort. None of those things should be the things that bind us together. Not in this church family. No. We come together here because all of us have been loved by Jesus Christ Himself. We are, listen, listen, we are a band of natural enemies who have been called to love for the sake of Jesus. Now that's good news. That's good news. And that's why, that's why Paul says in verse 8, this is a trustworthy saying. You you have your sins forgiven in the past, the Holy Spirit is, is cleansing you in the present, and then in the future, based on Jesus Christ, we are, well, we already are heirs, but we have the best is yet to come. Heirs having the hope of eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Savior. That's That's good stuff, Paul says. That's a trustworthy saying. And I want you to stress these things, he says, so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. You see, the kindness and love of God appearing in Jesus Christ, we're not done yet. We're not done yet. Because the kindness and love of God now through his Holy Spirit, now that we've been cleansed, now that we've been purified, and now being heirs of the hope, now that gives us a purpose to live now. And and so the kindness and love of God our Savior appearing in the most unlikely places like the island of Crete. And Gary talked about Celebrate Recovery and how in January of 2010, it is our prayer that this ministry we'll reach the most unlikely places in Champaign-Urbana. Because, because our community needs Jesus. Our community needs kindness and love. And that love is going to be Jesus' love and Jesus' kindness flowing through his people as we reach out to the world. And it goes on and on, and it gets better and better until heaven. That's the hope of eternal life. Do you hear what Paul is saying in this two-sentence sermon? Jesus Christ came. Jesus Christ came so that enslaved insurgents might become heirs of his kingdom. That's what he's saying. Jesus Christ came to us when we were at our worst. So that by his spirit, we could live at our best. Now that's a Christmas take home. And I want to stress these things, because they're excellent and profitable for all of us. Listen, Don Miller is an author, and he has written a book titled, Searching for God Knows What. And in that book, he tells about the day that he uh, literally crawled into a bedroom closet Uh, to pull out a friend of his who was in such a drunken stupor. This friend was an alcoholic, and he was about ready to lose his family. And he pulls his friend out, and that was the day they realized he needed help. And so he takes his friend, he put his friend on a plane that would take him to a recovery rehab place. And Miller drove away from the airport thinking, I don't think my friend's going to make it. I really don't. He was really concerned. He didn't think he was going to make it. Two months later, he sees this friend. And he, he saw the journey of rebirth and renewal that was going on in his friend's life and in his heart. And uh, Donald Miller asked his friend, okay, wh- what's, been, what's been catalytic to bring about this transformation? What is it? And his friend said this. His friend said, I remember the day when I uh, was in a large group session with all the patients, and then my family was there. And my father stood up. This was an adult man. He said, my father stood up in front of all the patients, and he said, I've never loved my son as much as I do at this moment. I love him. And I want all of you to know that I love him. And Miller wrote, he said, my friend said at that moment for the first time he was able to believe that God loved him too. And that he believed that if if God loved him and his father loved him and his wife all loved him, then he was gonna win. Because love wins, church. Now listen to me. Hear me. God the Father loves you. God the Son loves you. God the Holy Spirit loves you. I love you. There is is nothing but love in this room. And that love, which comes from the throne of God, is gonna be what drives us from this day on. And when you have that love and drink of that love and live off of that love, church family, we will win. Amen.